For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Modern Adventurer podcast, where adventurers and explorers tell their stories. Coming up. was They were forced to take this journey because of the Western expansion across America. Um, and they were forced to relocate from their homes in the Great Smoky Mountains, which is where the Cherokee were traditionally based. And they were forced to walk, um, I think it was 1,300, 1,200 miles into Oklahoma, which was classed as Indian territory at that point. Um, and now it's modern day Oklahoma. So they were forced with other four other tribes um, that were, were on the eastern side of the US. They were all forced at that point to walk all that distance in midwinter uh, and to end up in Oklahoma. And this this story, because of the, the tragedy of the story for the Cherokee people, because so many of them died on this route. I'm John Horsfall. I'm an adventurer. And here each week, I will be talking to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have made remarkable and daring journeys in recent years. From Everest climbers to polar explorers, world record holders, and many more. I hope this podcast sparks ideas and inspires you to explore and go on your own grand adventure. But before we start, if you've enjoyed the podcast, sign up to the monthly newsletter, which is in the description below where I show you behind the scenes, I do giveaways and offering you the chance of an adventure. My next guest is an adventure photographer and explorer, a former Royal Marine who travels to remote environments to capture the experience through storytelling and his passion to learn about heritage and traditions from the native cultures that call it home. On today's podcast, we are talking about his 1,300 mile journey to retrace the footsteps of the Cherokee people. A fascinating and slightly harrowing tale called The Trail of Tears. To tell the full story, I am delighted to introduce Ian Finch to the show. Hey, how you doing? Very well. Well, for people listening, Ian and I had the pleasure of uh, meeting about three weeks ago for a photo shoot with Musto. And Ian has some pretty incredible adventure stories to tell, and I was delighted to get him on. But before we sort of jump into it, Ian, I, I suppose probably the best place to start is with you and about yourself. Yeah, so um, first and foremost, I'm a photographer, so adventure photographer, and um, I work with outdoor brands um, to help them sort of like create like really strong visual narratives for um, up and coming shoots. Um, and also I, I am an expedition leader, so I've, I've 
conducted sort of some pretty sort of big, um, meaningful expeditions in in some wild places all over the all over the globe. Um, and then I come back and I'm really passionate about telling those stories and helping inspire people to sort of find their own adventure and and and, and undertake their own big big journeys. What do you think um, caused you to go into this sort of field? Because I know you were a former Royal Marines. Do you think that training and that background sort of set you on this path? Um, I think the military aspect of, of, of my life, you know, looking back on it, the things that I took from that now are more the mindset principles of, of that you need and you utilize when you're on expeditions about like dealing with cold weather routines, um, like positive habits, um, dealing with challenge and setbacks and failure or, or having to, you know, push forward physically in sort of arduous, arduous times. Um, those are the things I look back and think that's what I took from, from my career in the Marines and all the practical stuff. Yeah. You, you do take, certain aspects of that and bring that forward but those real practical skills fade the the mental ones and the and the sort of the ones that you really absorb into your character the ones that you you take forward without a doubt how long were you in the royal marines for so it was close to about five years in the end so i left in 2008 which is quite a long time ago now (laughs) and so you've been on a sort of quest for big big grand adventures ever since yeah, yeah. It was um, when I left the Corps and, and even before that, I was always wild camping, going to Scotland and Wales, Lake District and wild camping all over the place with friends and that kind of stuff. But when it when I came out of the Marines, um, that continued because I've always had this like deep love of nature and wildness and wildlife and all of those kind of things. So it, it didn't, the, the expedition stuff didn't really take hold um, until I, I did sort of mounting leader training Um and then I was doing sort of slightly longer journeys. And then I would go to the Hebrides and I, I walked the length of the Outer Hebrides, which was my first um, long distance kind of walk as, as, as such. And then I found I really wanted when the photography and that really became a big part of my life. Um, I started to really think about narrative and the journeys that I was taking on. I wanted them to be bigger and longer and have a much stronger narrative where I could really immerse myself in a story or a story in a group of people or a landscape or an environmental story. And as I really sort of cultivated the desire to photograph and write about the journeys that I was on, I was then looking for bigger, more stronger stories, which then led to the bigger journeys. Um, so yeah, it was, it was quite an organic process, um, to lead into the the real big expeditions, but, um, it's now I could, I couldn't imagine my life without them, to be honest. (laughs) Well, let's jump into them. So your, one of your journeys was in the, the Cherokee, sorry, the Cherokee trail. What was that about? What was the sort of aims of that trip? So it was actually, um, the idea of my expedition partner, Jamie Barnes, and previous, previously to that, a few years before that, I had descended the Yukon River by, by canoe where the, the narrative of that story was to meet and um, some of the, the many native groups that lived along that river. Um, so my, a lot of my expeditions revolve around learning and meeting um, native groups in a certain region that we're in um, and then learning about traditions and heritage and, and stuff like that and, and um, environmental aspects of, of their life, their modern life. So the Cherokee um, journey was based around a route that the, the Cherokee people were forced to take in 1838. And 
the the the, the sort of the, in in sort of a, in brief the the journey that they took was that they were forced to take this journey because of the western expansion across america um, and they were forced to relocate from their homes in the Great Smoky Mountains, which is where the Cherokee were traditionally based. And they were forced to walk, um, I think it was 1,300, 1,200 miles into Oklahoma, which was classed as Indian Territory at that point. Um, and now it's modern day Oklahoma. So they were forced with other four other tribes um, that were, were on the eastern side of the US. They were all forced at that point to walk all that distance in midwinter. Um, uh, and to end up in Oklahoma, and this this story because of the the tragedy of the story for the Cherokee people, because so many of them died on this route, um, was called then called the Trail of Tears, or as, or as the Cherokee call it, the Trail where they cried. Um, and this is because yeah, lots of people died on that trail. It's a very sacred trail to the Cherokee even to this day. Um, and we thought it would be very interesting to. Uh, rewalk this trail and follow because there was many aspects to this trail so some Cherokee was split up into many detachments so the army the American army at, at this point split up and and moved certain aspects of the Cherokee by river by land and all this kind of thing so we incorporated many different aspects of many different routes of the same trail of tears um, so that took us about took us about three months where we we crossed a mountain range we paddled, so we canoed 900 miles, and then we walked another 400 miles um, at the end of the trip. And we ended up in Oklahoma at the Cherokee um, Heritage Center, which is where all Cherokee artifacts kept, all the, the Cherokee baskets, lots of beautiful Cherokee tradition is kept in this museum. So we actually finished the trail, and we actually finished the trail walking with Cherokee people. So this was all pre-organized and we, we made first made connections with the Cherokee um, by the Cherokee Nation, which is the kind of government um, body for the Cherokee Nation itself. And we asked permission to do the trail because obviously it's a very sacred trail and there's obviously some sensitivity towards two white guys from Europe doing the trail. Um, so we asked permission and then we, we were granted that and it was our sort of aim to tell a really authentic um representation of the trail as we went so it was actually quite difficult to do that uh because there was massive periods where we we weren't um we were we were going from one section to another to, to another so what we decided to do was complete the whole journey and then spend a week with the cherokee or a number of cherokee people and live and live with them um in in oklahoma and then really learn about the story visit some historical sites um look at all manner of Cherokee culture, modern and, and and sort of traditional. And yeah, and that that featured um when we when we wrote that photograph that that featured in Sidetrack magazine as one of their biggest stories, a 20-page story. Wow. I, how did the Cherokee people sort of take to you this story? A lot of the when we arrived into Oklahoma and we were we were telling people that we were doing this because a lot of the time we weren't saying anything. Um Per se, so we, we would, if we, we we were stopping off along the way and speaking to random people or staying with random people, we would tell them this story and why we're doing it. But we kind of kept it quite simple. So once we got into Oklahoma, a lot of the questions um, that came up were why why are two white guys doing this? Um, and understandably, that question was was quite important for us to ask. 
So we we both very much interested in Native American tradition and heritage, and and I come from a background where my dad was very much interested in that and still is interested in that. So I've kind of absorbed that from him. Um, so we just told them that we felt it's a story that people in the UK haven't heard. It's a story that still needs to be heard. Um, and we felt it's just really important that stories like this are remembered and continue to be remembered. So it went down um, with the Cherokee people. It went down well. Um, and a lot of the time people were saying thank you as well for making this story um visible in in different cultures amazing and was it all plain sailing because you were doing this in the sort of mid midwinter you said uh no so the the original trail was in midwinter so when when the cherokee were forced to walk uh walk this route it was in 1838 the winter of of that year um we did it in summer okay. um well not in summer but we started in the great smoky mountains in march um, and that was, you know, that was going down to minus six, minus eight in the mountains for that first week. So that was that was pretty cold. But then it went from April into May. Um, but we also paddled we the sec the nine hundred miles of canoeing, which was on the Tennessee River, the Ohio, and the Mississippi, was actually through kind of tornado season. So it was pretty treacherous um, to be canoeing. And also prior to that period on the water, they had had the worst weather in 20 years in terms of rainfall in not only in the regions um, where the main part of the river was but at the source as well so all of the rivers were flooded um, and all of the rivers had reached into the forests that were on the banks so a lot of the time we were actually paddling through forests um, we were paddling through whirlpools all sorts of crazy stuff because the, the hydrology of the river had changed because it was pushed into the forests and everything like that. And the water was going through submerged trunks, even submerged buildings at that point. Um, and also it's on a couple of the sections, we, because of the really extreme weather and the flooding of the rivers, we were paddling past trees that were upside down in, uh, sorry, houses that were upside down in trees and all of that kind of stuff, which was just incredible, really. Um, so it was it the the conditions per se weren't too bad, but the actual is it in terms of like the climate conditions, but the actual on the ground the conditions were and on the rivers they were they were quite treacherous and incredibly dangerous. And there was one one time that we actually nearly died. Actually, probably two occasions that we nearly died on the river. What happened? We had we had, we had paddled the whole of the um, Tennessee River, which was couple of hundred miles, maybe five, 600 miles. Then we, we the Tennessee goes up to the Ohio and then the Ohio meets the Mississippi. <clears throat> so the Mississippi, it's still used as a super highway. So the Mississippi is, it's, it, apparently it's cheaper to still move cargo and goods up the Mississippi like the old days on these huge barges. Now, these barges are these high powered kind of steamer boats that then push these huge metal containers, which are 100 feet long, 200 feet long. But one of these boats can push upwards of 24 containers, so all stacked in a line in front of each other. So when we got onto the Mississippi, um, we then, not only did we have the added danger of the river being flooded, et cetera, et cetera, we also had the added danger of these huge boats coming up the river and kicking off these huge wakes which were sometimes six, eight feet high, the wakes that were on the river. 
So whenever we saw them, uh, we had to go uh, pull into um, one of the forests, which was still flooded, and tie the boat up, wait for the barge to go past, take on the swell, holding onto the trees and stuff like that, and then paddle back out, paddle down river. And if we saw another one, it'd be exactly the same story. And this could happen 10, 20 times a day sometimes. <clears throat> so when when the barges aren't pushing these metal containers, the containers are um, kept on the sides of the river. So maybe sometimes two, two abreast and then lined up down the river and tied by these metal chains, maybe 10 feet from the shore. Um, and then when the, the barges need them, they go to the, they go to these containers, pick them up and then move them on and fill them with grain and coal and cement, etc. So we found that it was actually um, slightly more safer to, instead of paddling out in the river where the barges were, was actually to paddle down between the containers. So you had the, 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 the bank on one side and then there was a 10 foot gap and then one of these metal containers. So we would paddle down the side of these containers in these narrow channels. Then every 15 to 20 feet or every 100 feet, maybe, there would be um, a 100 meter gap between sets of containers. And then there'll be another three or four containers and then another 100 meter gap. And in quite a few of these gaps between the containers, there was an eddy. So whether an eddy, just for people that know, is a, 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 an area of water that's almost coming back on itself. So the water reverses because of where it's situated on, on the river and the flow and et cetera, et cetera. So we would stop in these eddies between the containers and actually um, have a rest. So one of these time, one of these days, the weather was really bad. So we had uh, maybe like 20 mile an hour winds on the, on the river, which is quite bad, kicking up a massive swell. And we had about three miles to go to get to this town where we knew we had pizza, coffee, shelter. So we we were we had the canoe on the side of the river and we made a decision to take on the river with the current, which was at seven, seven knots, which is pretty fast for a river, with with wind, with a very bad storm that was coming in, just to get to this town. Now these are the kind of decisions that you make, which sometimes um, you don't realize at the time can be actually life and death. Um, and you take them because, you know, you think you want shelter, pizza, warm bed, um, when really maybe we should have stayed in a tent on the side of that kind of muddy, horrible river for, for safety. But anyway, we decided to go for it and we were nipping down between the sides of these containers. Um, and there was a huge storm that was coming in to our, to our side there. And this, there's pictures, pictures of this on my Instagram, which is almost, it's almost like a forming tornado. And we, we knew we had to get to this town for safety. And it was raining. It was ter seriously torrential rain. And we pulled into one of these, what we thought was an eddy between these two massive containers. And we were reaching down into the canoe to get the cameras out to take a picture of this storm. And then as I looked up, I realized that we were still in the, um, in the flow of the river. Now, at this point, the Mississippi was meeting, it was a convergence point of the, the, the Mississippi and the Ohio, and it was on the bend. So for those that know about water and rivers and canoeing or whatever, it's the bend is the part, fastest part of the river because the water's pushed into the bend and then pushed out of the bend. Um, and there was just a kind of a convergence of all manner of problems at that point. So you had the, the flow, the storm, the narrow distance between the two containers, so as I looked up, the canoe was moving si uh, forward, sorry, nose in 
to one of these containers. Now these containers have their fronts are like that. So the water was going down and underneath these containers at a rapid speed. So I just screamed to Jamie to start paddling. Um, and as he started paddling, I kind of turned the canoe sideways. So we were side on to the container um, and then we were paddling hard. So as we were paddling, we were going forwards and sideways with the flow. And we just missed the front of this container was having this water sucked underneath it. But then as we came round the side of this container, there was a barge coming straight for us. Um, and at this point, it was uh, I can only remember the feeling of it was like a hose pipe. And when you squeeze the hose pipe and the, the water being shot out of the front of a hose pipe so fast when you squeeze it, um, like a garden hose pipe. And we just shot between the barge and the container like a bullet because the water was so fast and we are getting channeled past it. And um, then the swell of the barge hit us but we, I turned the canoe into the swell and then we went over the swell. Um, and then 10 minutes later, we paddled into this tiny, tiny coastal, uh, not even coastal, it was a, a tiny town called Whitcliffe in Kentucky. And it was the rain was so heavy and we were just sitting there and the canoe was filling up with water and we were just shaking um, because of what actually happened. So we managed to just pull ourselves together. We went into this place and said, look, we need somewhere to just chill for the night and, and stuff like that. But when we got into this, tiny port which it was which was a barge port so barges were coming in and out there all the time apparently all the barge people all the people the barge captains had been on radio saying they're these crazy guys in a canoe <laughs> out in the storm out on the river and to watch out for them because people had been killed at this area before because of because of all of the con convergence of factors um and then a boat captain came in and he said you guys are suicidal Firstly, being on the river when it's flooded like this. Secondly, paddling down by these containers um, and paddling out on the river at this point. Um, and they, they were saying that they had seen big boats get sucked under the front of these containers and get basically crushed like a Coke can in a Coke machine. You know, those, you get those machines where they crush Coke cans. Um, they had seen big boats being pulled in under these and, and being crushed like that. So we were no doubt we were probably three feet away from drowning at any one point. And then strangely enough, something not as not similar, but something moderately similar happened the following day where we were caught out again, even though we were taking, taking care. So <laughs> looking back on that situation, it was just a, you know, you learn a lot of lessons from, from days like that to, tr to trust your instinct to sometimes try not to be too brave when the weather and the conditions aren't suitable. And also, um, yeah, just uh, sometimes it's better to sit sit and wait it out rather than um, go for the pizza and go for the warm bed. <laughs> That's basically <laughs> so tempting after a few days while camping. But yeah, I mean, I was, uh, and you went even after the captain sort of said you guys are suicidal. You went the next day. Yeah. So the following morning, the weather was beautiful, um, and uh the the conditions the, the the weather was clear there was no wind on the river um and we sat up for hours and we were like how the hell are we going to get out of this port because there was ship ships moving in and out of it and containers moving in and out of it and we just decided to make a run for it when we saw a gap um after 
after that. But then, then that day was then our biggest canoe day, our distance day. We, we canoed 55 miles that day, I think, or 53. Um, so, yeah, it's you you take the rough with the smooth. And I think it's all about, especially when you're on the river, it's all about mitigating risk. Um, and, 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 and looking back on it, it's just all about safety. You know, your life is the most important thing in the world and coming home safely is the most important thing in the world. And so I suppose even after those sort of torrid times, what sort of motivated you to sort of keep going? Was it the story to be able to tell, to, to tell this story? Not the story of us, you know, in that situation. But what we always had to remember is in, in times of hardship on that river and, and when we were walking and crossing the mountains in, in cold weather was that the, the story of the Cherokee was, was the, the driving force for that whole journey. Um, and the people during that time lost their homes, lost their livelihoods. They were driven from their, their, their spiritual and traditional homes. They were forced into... Um, reservations and lands that they'd never been to with at times only the belongings that they had on them. So literally only the clothing that they had on them. So any, whenever every time's got hard, we would think back to that and think, you know, we're here to tell a story and yes, we've been through a couple of challenging situations, but it's nothing compared to what they went through and still go through from a, you know, a spiritual perspective and, and cultural perspective. So that was always in the back of our minds. And when things got bad, yes, we had to check in and be like, okay, we need to look after ourselves obviously here and make the right decisions. But um, we would think back to what those people endured and still endure. And that was our driving force to keep going. It is quite the story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of many. <laughs> so with the canoeing, you sort of specialize quite a lot in your canoeing ex expeditions. You also had quite a memorable one in the Yukon. Is that correct? Yeah. What What was the sort of inspiration behind that trip? So that trip was, again, to learn, meet, talk with the people of the river. Um, and that was kind of my initial sort of ethos. I wanted a, a three-month expedition. I wanted a, a canoe expedition. I wanted to be able to photograph, film, learn, discuss, sit with native people of that region to learn about um, where their culture stands today, um, their, their, whether there's still a connection to the landscape and the wildlife. Importantly, their connection to the river and their, how, whether they, they sustain livelihoods and food from the river. Um, obviously, the adventure. Um, the three-month expedition of being, you know, crossing completely from one side to another of Alaska, pretty much. Um, so it was it was very much geared around um, meeting the people and learning about uh, who the who the people were, their traditions, and their connection to the river. Amazing. And so was that with the same crew as your Cherokee Trail? No, so the, uh, with the, on the Cherokee journey, that was with one person. That was with a guy called Jamie Barnes, another fellow sort of photographer and adventurer. Um, the other one, the, the uh, Yukon descent, was with a team of three people. So there was four of us in total, and we had two people from Montreal and one from Brooklyn. So we had uh, a lady called Caroline Cote, who's a, an unbelievable athlete and adventurer and filmmaker. Um, Equally um, incredible canoeist called Martin Trahan, um, who had crossed Canada by canoe 
Um, and then a photographer called Jay Colsh, who is an incredible photographer from Brooklyn. Um, and I put that team together without meeting any of them. And we met on the trip. So we'd had Skype calls, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we'd all talked about our kind of vision for the journey and the dream, but each person kind of had their designated role. Um, and yeah, so we filmed that trip, which is now a, a documentary on Amazon. Um, and Martin was really the, the logistics guy of understanding how we would, um, gather that, that amount of food for three months. Um, uh, the logistics of canoes, the logistics of, um, sending food on, sending barrels on, et cetera, et cetera. The, the really sort of day-to-day, um, mechanics of the journey. Um, and then Jay was there to just capture that whole experience so we obviously none of us um got paid for that trip we it featured in sidetrack magazine of that year but um where we got a little bit of money for writing the story and jay got some money for the pictures but other than that it was completely self-funded um yeah so it was a it was a pretty international team from canada us uk and it worked wonderfully i mean you have those those challenges of human relationships which you have on any trip with people that you haven't met and you haven't sort of formed and bonded over the years of friendship and relationships and understanding characteristics and drives and everything um but yeah it was it it became an epic journey that kick-started everything for me amazing and do you what do you think because as i say when you haven't met them and when you sort of are literally turning up probably to meet them for the first time and on these trips you go through quite a few hardships and struggles which really put push people to the test what do you think sort of makes a successful expedition the, the, what makes a su- successful expedition is personal narrative like the the why is everything so my my narrative was to go and meet the people and paddle through some of the wildest sort of terrain in sort of, you know, North America. Caroline's was to film, you know, to film it. She had an interest in native cultures as well. Martin was purely a canoeist. So, it, and Jay was the photographer and Jay wanted to really capture that. So it was all, of, I think the, when we go on journeys or we choose journeys, the why is a massive important, important part of that. Because when times get tough, you get tired, you get hungry. Like I had on the river, the story we've just discussed, you know, is that the, the why is what keeps you moving forward. Yeah, you got to check in and be like, okay, this needs to change, or we need to adapt this, et cetera, et cetera. But the why is everything. Um, and once you have a strong why, you will go beyond what needs to be done to sort of achieve achieve that journey. Yeah, we had George George Kefford on uh, last week, and he was saying that he writes down all his goals and his whys about why he's doing the trip. I mean, I always have it in my head, but by writing it down every time he always said it comes to hardship, he'll look at his why and be like, this is why I want to be here. This is why I'm going through all these struggles, which I thought was a really great way of, you know, keeping a, keeping a focus on the success of the expedition. And I think as well, it's, you know, having accountability, having people there that are on that journey as well that can lift you up when times are struggle and then you do the same for them. Um, but I think, I think everybody having a personal connection to the journey is really, really, really important. And also 
everybody being clear about their their motivations and their outcome for that journey. So what do people want to get out of it? You know, do you want A, B, C, D, or E, or do you want all of the above? You know, it's it's important that you clarify those kind of things if you go on a journey with people that you don't know, because sometimes wires can get crossed um, and, and people think something that's not going to be sort of coming to fruition. On some of these expeditions, uh, I always find sometimes when you go with someone and you have different goals, were there any sort of clashes of goals where they sort of, um, what's the word, conflicted in what one wanted to achieve and what the other one wanted and they both couldn't work together? Yeah, I think I think they can always, things can always work um, if you communicate. Um that trip, the Yukon trip in particular, was my my dream trip, my first big big ever three monther, and I kind of treated it like that. So it was like, oh, we can um, bring a filmmaker, fabulous. I'd love you to just catch an objective view of this trip, photographer. I'd love you to catch an objective view of this trip, Martin. You can come along and help with. There was the thing is, I never set any really true boundaries. So it was like, yeah, we're going on this trip and we're doing this. We kind of know what we need to do. This is how we're going to do it. This is where the food's going to be, picking it up, you know, flying into here and flying out there. Um, yeah, but I never set any boundaries with regards to decision-making um, or safety and these kind of things. So in, especially on the Yukon, um, I was the not the most the least inexperienced, but I was one of the least inexperienced. So Martin was the most experienced person on that trip in terms of canoeing and long distance sort of expedition canoeing so I, I i looked up to him a lot and i i trusted him and um we we looked to him for logistical sort of knowledge and how to get things done um and he was incredible at that but we did clash because there was certain points uh within the trip where he uh, decisions were being made based on the skill set and the, the, the ability of him and the other canoeist, whereas myself and Caroline, who are in a canoe, our sort of collective skill set wasn't as strong. So I'm a great believer in, you know, you always work to the level of the, the, the weakest person or the, the, those with the least, you know, skill set. You know, you're there for that person and um, you help them through that situation if you're more, if you've got more, better skills. Um, and decisions were being made and chart, chart risks were being taken based on the stronger skill set. Um, and when we had conversations about that, um, I then had to get to a point where I had to set boundaries and say, right, this is, um, I'm going to make the decisions here. Um, can we communicate before any decisions are made in the future? And this is why we're making those decisions. So, um, and that caused a little bit of friction because you've got on the one hand, you've got someone who's experienced and making decisions based on their experience. And then you've got me who's who's put the trip together and is thinking erring on the side of safety. So there's, you've got to find that, that, that sort of flux point of where you're working together. And then there's some movement within that. Um, and that did cause some friction. Um, but all you've got to do is just communicate and be open and be honest and say, and explain why you you're, you're coming to this decision and why you're making this decision. I mean, then things tend to work okay, but yeah, they, I've always said on expeditions, the, the the distance or the tiredness or the practical stuff is never the hardest. It's the human relationships, which are the hardest um, and getting on with people um, when times are bad 
cold, wet, hungry. You know, that's when you find out what people are really made of um, and how people respond to adversity. That's when you find what people are really made of. So, yeah, that, that, that was the hardest part of the expedition for me was, was the human relationships. I think, I think they all are. I think when you go on these trips, the human interactions and what people want are always the toughest. And if you can get that right, it usually makes for such a successful expedition. Yeah, totally agree. And that, that, that starts before you leave. So the people that you're with, you know, um, talking to them, maybe even going out on a mini expedition with them, you know, COVID permitting or whatever beforehand is, is, is really important and spending a few days with that person. So, you know, if you're like, you're doing, um, at some point you're doing a, a paddle, you know, I'd imagine that you want to go and meet that person, paddle with them for a few days or go hiking and wild camping with that person or spending some time in nature with that person. So you can get to know them a little bit. So then when you go, sh- you drop straight into that journey, you know, you've got that foundation of understanding a little bit about each other um, rather than doing what I did, which was just going straight off the deep end and, making it work but saying that you know i learned some on that trip i learned some of the best leadership skills i've ever learned probably even more than the marines by being in that on that journey and learning how to communicate with people in terms of their value systems and stuff like that and learning um learning how to communicate in terms of putting a team together to get the job done and finish and that kind of stuff and with everybody in a safe safe way so yeah, my only bit of advice on that would be get to know the person a little bit before you spend a lot of time with them. Yeah, I, well, as I say, your photography and film that you've done on some of these trips and those ones in particular are absolutely breathtaking. Your photography, well, as as I know from being with you and also from your Instagram and website, it's stunning. And for anyone who's interested in these stories, his website ianfinch.com tells the whole story through words through images through film so you can go and check check it out so ian there's a part of the show where we ask the same five questions to each guest each week with the first being what's the one item or gadget that you always bring on your expeditions um other than a camera which is like an extension of my body and my soul. Um, one gadget. No, it's the camera. Camera. It's the camera. Without that, you know, like, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an extension of my body and it's something that I take everywhere with me and I'm learning to use now a little bit more, um, not respectfully, but um, what's the word? intermittently i'm learning to now when i do expeditions and I, I take photos i'm learning to look more rather than take photos more you know there's a time to take photos a time to not take photos so i'm that's i can't, I can't go anywhere without my camera yeah i agree i think one thing i learned from one of my expeditions was especially going through all the um all the images and all the photos and videos from it is actually having an idea or of what you want to shoot before you shoot. Otherwise you're just shooting for the sake of shooting being like, Oh, that looks nice. Click. That looks nice. Click. And then you get back and you realize that they're okay, but they're not great. And actually, if you say, this is what I want to shoot, take the time, shoot it, then put the camera away and then just immerse yourself into that experience. I think that 
it helps massively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. And I think and I've spoken about this before where sometimes the camera can become a middleman, like a plane of glass between um, you and the experience um, and the desire when, when you, when you like photography as much as I do in visual storytelling, um, it, your first instinct is to take a photo rather than look with your eyes and absorb that memory, etc. Um, so I've had to learn to, to put the camera down or to think about story, like you just pretty much what you just said there to think about story and like, does it, is this picture relevant to the story? Yeah, it could be. And then if not, you just, the camera doesn't need to be there. doesn't need to be out and, and, and taking you away from that moment. Yeah. I think that, I mean, what's it? I think it was when the Pope first came to power, there's a sort of picture of everyone holding up their iPads and you're just watching the screen of what's actually happening. Whereas if you take it away and actually just take a moment to, for where you are, um, I think that memory holds a bit Otherwise, you're just basically watching a TV. You might as well be at home. Yeah. And I think a good, a good practice for that is a few years ago, I did a project where um, I walked across the Lake District and I only had a throwaway camera as my camera. So I left my DSLR at home um, and I only had the 27 images on an old Kodak throwaway camera that you can buy for like seven quid from Amazon. Um, and that was to force me into a position where I only had 27 images to create the story for that, that, that trip. And also I had a very rudimentary camera that had no focus. I had to measure the distance that it was in focus at, like the kind of focal length, et cetera. So what that taught, taught me was, okay, if I come to a scene or anything, does this picture need to be taken? If it doesn't, the camera can go away. If it does, then it's it, you know it's a really important, beautiful picture because the light's right and the context is right. I would take the picture. Um, so yeah, that was a nice example. You know that kind of nice way of doing things because obviously iPhones and um, DSLRs, you've got unlimited imagery storage on those cards. So um, it's nice to do that every now and again. You know, yourself force yourself to be creative. Yeah. Yeah. No, very true. What camera do you have for all people listening? Um, I have a Nikon Z7. Um, so I stay with, I, I work with Nikon, um, which in in today's world, you know, they're not the, the best cameras out there. You've now got the Canon R5 or the, the Sony A7R4s and that kind of thing, which are technically better cameras. Uh, but I just love the color profiles that come out of Nikons. Um, yeah, they yeah, I may change one day, but for the moment, it's the Nikon. Yeah. What is your favorite adventure or travel book? I probably would actually, I probably would say it was this one, um, the, the quote, because I know one of the questions you're asking about from a quote, but it's one, it's this one here called The North American Indian. And it's a book by a photographer called Edward Curtis. Now, Edward Curtis was a guy that spent 20 or 30 years in the early 1900s using a plate camera. So like on on an old tripod with plate glass kind of um, exposure. And he traveled around every tribe in North America and recorded them um, in that state, in that point. So would, yeah, I think we're talking early 1900s and it took him 30 years to do it. And over this time, he's taken the most unbelievable portraits sepia portraits of, of these native americans with their regalia on um in their kind of um 
So yeah, the book, he spent 20 or 30 years um, and created 30 volumes of photos um, of these Native American tribes and people and important people within those tribes. And some of the portraits are just unbelievable. The book, it was just inspired me in so many ways because of the incredible Native American portraits. And it's a book my dad gave to me as well, which gives it sort of equal, you know, more importance than anything. Um, But it's just the the guy's technical photography and how good he was at taking these photos with the equipment that he had at that moment in history Um, and the time that it took him to, to, you know, the breadth of his work over 20 or 30 years. I have to check that one out. Why are adventures important to you? I think immersing ourselves in nature as much as we can is important. I think it's something that we are losing contact with. Um, Our connection to the outdoors, our spiritual connection, our physical connection to the outdoors is something that I believe that we are slightly losing a little bit, losing touch of. Um, Also, adventure is so important because you're in some way or another, you're pushing a boundary or pushing a comfort zone. And that to me is, is how we grow as people. Um, and, and, and not forget, forgetting that adventure is very relative. So you could be a mum with two children and put a tent in the garden and that could be adventure for you. Or you could be like me and you where we travel to wild places for something a little bit more extreme or longer or everything like that. So remembering adventure is still relative and, Adventure is in our DNA. Exploration is in our DNA as people, as human beings, to explore, to go to different terrains, different environments. And I think we need to we need to nurture that and feed that as much as we can. Um, and I think being in nature, spending time in nature, and just pushing ourselves is 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 just good for the soul. It's food for the soul. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Uh, as, as you were basically saying, I think the quote is comfort and growth cannot coexist. Yeah, that's it. And, and one of mine is without challenge, there is no growth. So that's why on those adventures, you know, you're not talking when you go on adventure, it doesn't have to be a physical challenge. It could be a mental challenge, cultural challenge, like challenge ideas, challenge your perspectives, um, challenge what you think um, is acceptable, not acceptable. Um, and also challenge yourself in terms of what you can achieve, what you can endure. Um, yeah, and, and I, th- I think I think adventure is important for everybody on every level. Yeah, I agree. What is your favourite quote? So my favourite quote is from that book um, of Edward Curtis, and the quote is. To accomplish it, Curtis has exchanged ease, comfort, home life for the hardest kind of work, frequent and long continued separation from his family, the wearing toil of travel through different regions, and finally the heartbreaking struggle of winning over to his purpose, primitive men to whom ambitious time and money mean nothing, but to who but to who a dream or a cloud in the sky or a bird flying across the trail from the wrong direction means much. And that to me says that you know that the 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 simple things on expeditions or in adventure are the most important things um and you endure um all of all of those struggles uh, of being separated from your family the money that it might cost the sacrifices that you might make to to go in search of a more simpler life um and when you're on expeditions i truly believe that 
it's the sim when you when you break it down into those really simple processes and acts of taking less amount of equipment and and um, and simplifying your life to a certain degree that's where the true beauty of expeditions is it's is to live more simply and exist more simply very nice people listening are always keen to travel and go on these big grand adventures what's the one thing you would recommend to people wanting to get started i would something that we've had to do because of covid is to start local um, and enjoy your local environment and explore explore what's around you i would say if people are starting out is to yeah just start local find a beautiful woodland find a trail through a beautiful woodland keep your phone in your pocket um, don't bring your phone out and just listen have have a mindful 20 minutes where you're not talking and listen to how much more that you can hear the birds the animals the wind um all you know engage all of the senses um, and if you're looking for something a little bit more uh challenging and longer distance or something that's going to push you in different ways again start with your why what what environment would i love this adventure to be in would it be woodlands would it be mountains would it be on a river would it be on water um and write down every component of that adventure how long would it be for would i be with other people um uh, what would be the goal of the journey uh how long would it be for write all of those things down in like a mini mind map and then think okay so what um what places can I go that are mountainous? What river could I go to that's here or there? Would I need to travel? You know, really break down and back engineer the components of that adventure and just really free think, write down anything and don't let any restrictions, be they travel restrictions, physical restrictions, um, whether you feel you can do it or can't do it mentally, you know, free think. Just, just write down exactly that dream adventure, that dream trip. Um, and if it's something you can't do this year, do it next year. Find something that feeds into some of those points somewhere here in the UK. So you could go to Wales, Scotland, Lake District. There's rivers, there's mountains, there's woodlands, there's long distance, small distance trails. There's no excuse. Yeah. The excuse and the barriers are the ones that we put up ourselves. So just design your dream adventure and then find a way to make that happen. And if you can't, contact me. I'll help <laughs> you make it happen. <laughs> Well, there you go. No, I, th I think it's very true. I think, you know, for this summer, especially as we were discussing before the podcast started, our intent, well, my intention and probably yours is to keep it local, to keep it UK based. And I, th I think, well, not that we have any choice anyway, but I think it's also nice to explore your own place. Your, your own home. I, I remember in 2017 cycling up to Edinburgh and I was just like blown away by the Peak District and the Lake District especially. And I, I had never really had any desire to go up there but other than maybe from with Nell and I. But other than that, <laughs> I was, yeah, I had no intention but it was, you know, more breathtaking than nearly 99% of the places that I've been around the world. And it's right on your doorstep, or right on my doorstep. Uh, so, yeah, it's definitely one to do. Think local. Yeah, that's it. And I, I think a lot of the time we, we, we assume adventure is far away. Mm -hmm. Going to another country, another continent, or going to a desert, 
mountain range or whatever. But again, going back to that adventure is a mindset. Um, and what it means to you and what it means to me is probably similar, but slightly different. And what it means to a mum of two children is very different. So yeah, explore local and, and find out kind of what adventure really means to you. Because you can, you can go and sleep in a, uh, a bivy bag in a beautiful pine woodland somewhere and take a little stove and make a cup of tea in the morning and that kind of thing, even, you know, the boundaries of being, things being legal and non-legal, but you could do that. And that's, that's an incredible adventure or it being in this country, you could go to a body, you could set up a body adventure and go and stay in bodies. Now bodies are what make a hike into a very cool adventure. So it, there's, there, there's, if you get creative and, you know, you find ways to do things, you, you can have an adventure in this country, a really good adventure. Yeah. Finally, what are you doing now and how can people follow your trips in the future? Um, so what I'm doing now is planning for the year ahead, which is probably going to be UK or local Europe based. <coughs> um, I'm thinking of potentially with a friend, if we can, crossing Sweden by foot and then Norway by canoe so norway and sweden are joined together so we're going to just literally go across the width of those two countries if we can't do that more than likely it will be scotland or something along those lines some big adventures canoeing some big locks maybe um something similar like that something that's arduous quite challenging for a week or two um and you can find me on instagram um so it's at ian the letter e finch and my website, which is www.ianefinch.com. Amazing. Well, Ian, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You have um, some incredible stories to tell, and I'm sure a few more that we haven't had the chance to get through. And for people listening, as I, as I was saying on the podcast, Ian's photography is truly brilliant. So uh, do check out his website and you can see, and Instagram, and you can see all the amazing photography he's done over the years lovely thank you no worries well absolute pleasure lovely thanks john thank you for listening you can watch the podcast on youtube now and don't forget to sign up for our adventure newsletter which is in the description below i hope you enjoyed the show and if you did tag me on instagram at john horsfall i'm always keen to connect with everyone i hope to see you next week for another fascinating tale of adventure but till then have a great day and happy adventures. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.